Good morning, Grace. Your reading today is John 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. One of the things that took me a long time to realize about the song It Is Well, which Matt was trying to help us appreciate, is that it's an indicative statement of everyone who's in Christ. It is objectively well with your soul. We're not singing it feels well, because it often doesn't. But it is well insofar as we are in Jesus. Thanks be to God. If you wanted to prove to the world that you were, in fact, the Son of God, we'd have a problem. But uh, if you did, and if God had come to you, probably a better way to phrase this is, if God came to you and said, what, what do you think I should do to prove to the world that Jesus is the Son of God? That's a better way to phrase what I wrote down here. What would you counsel God to do? In other words, if you wanted to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Son of God, the long-promised Messiah, what would you suggest he do? Uh, More particularly, assuming that your answer would include some type of miracle, what kind of miracle would you suggest? What what exactly would you suggest in terms of a miracle? So when you think of the kind of miracle that would leave absolutely no doubt as to the divine nature of Jesus, what's the best you got? What what can you come up with? Kids, I'd love for you to tell me after the service the best miracle you can think of, the the biggest one, the most spectacular, the most, you you cannot miss it. Let, Let me know after church today, what do you think? Well, as we've seen, miracles were indeed a part of the testimony that Jesus provided concerning his true nature. The interesting thing for me, though, and maybe you've noticed this too, is how low-key those miracles were. Jesus never did anything too far out of the ordinary. For instance, 
I think if it were up to me, I would have flown a lot more than Jesus did from place to place. In John, he keeps going from the north to the south to the south to the north and back and back and back. I would have just Superman style flown. And that way, part of my testimony is that everybody along the way gets to see this. And I, I probably would have had some, what are they, the, well, that too. That's a, that's even better still. But the smoke that planes do, whatever that's called. Contrail. Did somebody con- Yeah. I would have had that so people could see that too. And it probably would have been a different color. But Jesus didn't do any of that. Likewise, he didn't summon a pillar of fire. That would have been kind of cool just to sort of go around with him. I mean, there's precedent for that in the Old Testament. Another one I thought of was trees. It would be kind of cool as I walked around if trees just sort of did a quick cartwheel as I passed by them. There's just no way to explain any of that. There's no way to confuse any of that with something normal. Well, he didn't do any of that is, is the point. And and it's sort of, at least for me, somewhat surprising. When he healed, people just got better. Did it in a little bit of weird ways with some spit and some mud and stuff, but it, it just it just sort of happened. Water simply became wine. There was no soundtrack or special effects. I mean, just... You've probably heard this before, but take away the special lighting in movies and the music, and it just doesn't even look like what what it's supposed to look like. But Jesus didn't do any of that. The Bible never fully explains what's going on here or what's behind this approach. We're gradually given little pieces here and there of the answer, but we're never given a thorough or explicit explanation. Well, with that in mind, we've come to one of Jesus more, maybe the, one of the most famous miracles that he performs, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. But this is no exception to his low-key approach to miracle working. When he did it, the earth didn't split open and like volcano-style food flying out of the ground. None of that happened. The, the heavens didn't rip open and stuff fall down, rain down from it. There's no angel door dash. I mean, again, like just imagine a bunch of angels showing up with their server uniforms and all that. None of that happened. Instead, as far as we can tell, he did so by simply causing, <laughs> causing a few baskets or some baskets containing a few fish and pieces of bread never to be emptied. I find it I really do find this fascinating that there's no mention in any of the four gospel accounts of the crowd being amazed by whatever multiplication means that Jesus used. Does that make sense? Like what, what actually happened? We don't even know. It's almost like you see the, you know, the, the bread, the communion bread trays and there's a bunch in there and you take one out and it doesn't really look like the pile gets smaller. I mean, obviously it does when you take one, but it's almost like it just didn't. It's just, it just, you couldn't tell that anything, that's the impression that we're given from this. There's no indication at all from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that the means that Jesus used to do, do this was impressive at all, or that anyone even really noticed that. The thing that impressed them was simply that they were all fed. So through all this, we see the word of Jesus spreading further and further. The more this kind of thing he does, the more the word spreads. And, and as that happens, the crowds grow larger and larger. And 
Jesus' ministry is increasingly needed to, he needs to divide it between this public stuff that he's doing with the masses and the private stuff he's doing with the disciples and his closest followers. His revelation of himself through all of this becomes clearer and clearer, both publicly and privately. And the reaction of the people becomes more and more dramatic. Well, the main point of all of this is that Jesus is the Christ, but his time for fully fulfilling his role as the Christ had not yet come. It was drawing nearer and nearer, but there was more work that God the Father had for him on earth to be done first. And so our main takeaway as we see this, and as we see the people's response to this passage, is to fight to believe and then fight to remember that Jesus is the only path to everlasting life in joy. So let's pray and then get into the text. God, in a way that the audience or the crowd described by John in this passage didn't or lacked, in a way they lacked, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us to see what's really going on here. And appreciate it the way that we ought and respond to it the way that we should. This is, this is true. This is real. And it's as true and real today as it was back then. And where they lacked appropriate awe and wonder, fill us with it. And where they lacked an appropriate response and in fact got it tragically and catastrophically wrong, may we get it right with the help of your spirit to at least take steps towards getting it right. God, please give us eyes to see and ears to hear this passage and all the glory that is in it and all the implications there are for us today from it. Help me to be a faithful guide to that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I mentioned this before, and I'm going to keep mentioning it throughout John because it shows up so many times in this gospel. But I want you to get something here. And and again, I hope you see it building because it does. Throughout the entire three years of Jesus' ministry, he was consciously and masterfully overseeing a balancing act. What do I mean by that? Not not like of the juggling nature or a tightrope or something, but Jesus came to serve as an example for all mankind before dying for the sins of all mankind. What's more, Jesus accomplished, as Jesus accomplished the first, being an example in his teaching and revealing the will of God, showing who he was, as Jesus accomplished the first, he was ushering in the second, the dying for our sins. In other words, the more he functioned as his, according to his true nature, the more that the crowds were stirred and the religious leaders were annoyed and he would hasten his crucifixion. The more he revealed himself for who he was by his teaching and his miracles, he made it increasingly likely that he would be crucified and soon. The balancing act that I'm referring to then was of accomplishing all that the Father had given him on one hand, while not stirring up the Jews or the Romans so much that they would crucify him prematurely. In John's Gospel, we're witnessing an ongoing interplay between what Jesus said and did and the reaction that he got. You with me, Grace? 
He's aware of this. He's conscious of this. He knows that this is happening, which is why he regularly does miraculous things and then says, don't, don't tell anyone yet. My time has not yet come. This is, again, why, in part, if you read John, you get a little whiplash north to south and south to north and north to south. and so He's saying something and teaching something and doing something and, and stirring the crowds. And as it builds, he, he'll go and let it cool down there and he'll go and teach and preach somewhere else. That's part of what's happening there. Well, John 5 came to a close with Jesus in the south in Jerusalem for an unnamed feast. We're not sure which one it was. And then locked at that time in a trial of sorts with the Jews and the Jewish leaders. The trial arose, if you were here last week, you heard this. The trial arose because Jesus miraculously healed a man on the Sabbath. This led to accusations that in so doing, Jesus had broken the Sabbath and encouraged the man he healed to do so also. Well, that certainly would have and did cause a stir. There's a decent amount more that happens between the end of chapter 5 and where we pick up at the beginning of 6 than John tells us that explains the size of the crowd in verse 2. What do I mean by that? Interestingly, the miracles, uh, the, the miracle we're about to consider, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only one recorded in all four Gospels. I don't know if you knew that. It's helpful to know. And it's a particularly helpful because it gives us, it means we have more background to make sense of what happened here than, than just what John gives us. Well, it's not obvious in John chapter 6, verse 1, likely takes place about six months, or at least six months, after chapter 5, verse 47, the end of 5. Between the end of 5 and the beginning of 6, there's probably at least six months, maybe up to a year in between. We know this because of the change in feasts. Six one also takes place, again, up in the far north, near the Sea of Galilee. More important still is the fact that between the end of 5 and the beginning of 6, the other three gospel gospels tell us that Jesus had sent out the disciples, I'm going to quote from Matthew here, throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every, it says every disease and every affliction. For months, in between the end of five and the beginning of six, for months, demons had been cast out, sicknesses had been healed, and the good news had been proclaimed throughout all of Israel. With those additional details, the size of the crowd and the energy of the crowd and the enthusiasm of the crowd makes a lot more sense. And so we pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. After this, which is a lot more than John himself indicates, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The large crowd, as we'll see in just a few minutes, was around 5,000 men. The text tells us explicitly that it was 5,000 men, but it also included an undisclosed number of women and children. Did you know this, that it is estimated more than likely it was around 20,000 people in total that were here for this feeding? That's a lot of people, if you didn't realize. Tragically, however... They were not there because they'd come to believe in Jesus, but because they saw the signs he was doing. 
And that's part of what made this balancing act that Jesus was engaged in more and more precarious. Because they still didn't really understand who he was, they didn't really believe in him. We find that out from verse 15. And because they didn't really believe in him, they did not humbly surrender to him. And because they were not humbly surrendered to him, they were a fickle, an oscillating bunch, wavering back and forth. Balancing all of that was growing increasingly challenging, but grace our Lord was more than up to the task, perfectly orchestrating all things to the praise of the glory of God and the salvation of the world. So word was spreading and crowds were growing as Jesus moved toward the cross. Well, there's another, before we get to the miracle itself, there's another interesting aspect of the balancing act that Jesus was working to achieve concerning the interplay between his public ministry to the masses and his private ministry to the disciples. With the growing crowds, Jesus would preach and teach and perform signs. In private, then, Jesus would explain and test and commission the twelve and the growing number of close followers. In our passage for this morning, we get a glimpse of both, the public ministry and the private ministry. The bulk of the text and sermon are focused on the public ministry. But before we get there, I want to say a few words about his unique and particular ministry to the disciples. Privately, the text tells us, Jesus withdrew from the crowds with his disciples. There's no explicit mention in this passage of why Jesus initially withdrew or what they did while they were withdrawn. But given what we just saw, it's not all that hard to imagine. Jesus and his disciples had been separated for some time, each engaged in remarkable Ministry, And on top of that, they'd likely just heard another event that happened in between 5 and 6 was uh, John the Baptist was beheaded. They'd likely just heard of that. It's impossible, or it's possible, that this is the first time they'd gotten together in a while and wanted to process all that together. Nevertheless, the text simply says in verse 3, Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Well, additionally, even with within his ministry to the crowds, Jesus engaged the disciples personally. There were continually two tracks of ministry running for Jesus. Much of what he said and did with the crowds was meant to help the disciples understand so that they could best lead the church after Jesus ascended to the Father. Are you with me? A lot of what he did in public, a lot of what he taught, he would then explain privately to them more fully. We hear this in the other Gospels, especially as it relates to his, par- his parables. So, so therefore, in the midst of another public, marvelous work, we find an exchange, a private exchange, between Jesus and Philip, where Jesus sought to minister to him per- personally. In verses 4 through 8, that is, the crowds pre- as the crowds pressed in and Jesus anticipated what he was about to do, he took a minute before all this went down to help Philip understand a bit more about his power and overcome a bit of the functional atheism that Philip had but maybe didn't even recognize. Look at verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd, again, just picture 20,000-ish people coming towards you. I, I can't, but maybe you can. Jesus said to Philip, 
Where, Philip, are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, I found a boy, and he's got five loaves of barley and two fish, but what are they for so many? We need to marvel at this in the sense that even after they'd already witnessed, even after Philip had already seen in Jesus and with Jesus, it seems that it just didn't occur to him. It it never occurred to him that Jesus was not bound by the usual limitations of men. Knowing this, caring about this, being compassionate towards him for this, Jesus tested him in order to help him. Jesus asked Philip, what what do you recommend? Look at all these people coming. What do you think we should do? They're going to be hungry. I'm going to teach the other gospels tell us. How do we feed them? Again, he already knew what he was going to do, but what do you think, Philip? What should we do? Knowing what he was planning, Jesus was attempting to give Philip the proper framework to interpret what was about to happen. And I want to say this too. Parents... Elders, and any of you who are discipling someone or leading someone or ministering to someone or trying to help someone follow Jesus, hear this. All good teachers, all good mentors, all good disciple makers do something that we see in Jesus right here. As you seek to train, train up others, don't just impart skills but also help to help them to interpret the world in which those skills will be used. Help them to interpret those skills in the place they have in God's plan. Help them not to just learn how to do something, but understand how that something fits into the world that God designed. Philip and Andrew most certainly would have had the right answers. If Jesus would have said, do you believe that I can feed all these people miraculously? They would have said yes, almost certainly. But they lack the ability to see how their knowledge, in a sense, their understanding, in a sense, applied to their current situation. Isn't that you and I all the time? The disciples usually had to purchase their food. So Philip simply projected that out to the crowd and realized there's no conceivable way we have enough money to do that. Andrew was equally practical. He surveyed the people, apparently, to see if they had brought enough for themselves. But alas, they were as far short of food as they were of the money to purchase it. Well, as we'll see more and more, as Jesus' time draws near, Jesus' private ministry to his disciples would become increasingly important to overcome this kind of remaining unbelief. They were to be the ones who started taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and making disciples of all nations, teaching and baptizing And Jesus was doing everything necessary to make sure they were prepared. I don't want to get overly here and now with this, but I do want to say on a practical level, this is part of how we understand the relationship between the corporate worship service, this right here, our discipleship groups that meet throughout the week, and even our discipleship tracks or the one-on-one discipleship that takes place in Grace Church. And the corporate worship in this were meant to gather together around the reading and 
and praying and singing and celebrating and preaching of the word of God. It's meant to be the time of the most careful and specific and corporate proclamation. In our discipleship groups, though, we're meant to press further into the word together. It's still, they still have pastoral leadership, but are meant to be more interactive. The discipleship groups of Grace Church, narrowed down still from the whole church ministry, is a great place to get your questions answered. Here it's one way from me to you. And there it's meant to be far more interactive where you get your questions answered concerning the the facts or the truth, but also the applications to your life, for instance. And then then our discipleship tracks or the one-on-one discipleship that takes place is meant to be a bit more personal still. That's where the most specific questions can be asked and the most personal prayer requests shared. That's where where we're often best able not only to impart the truths, truths about following Jesus, but also our very lives as well, as Paul says. Well, all of that then leads us to the main passage and the central thrust of the text, the actual feeding of the 20,000 people with no food or money. And in that, we see four things. The miracle, the sufficiency, the leftovers, and the result. The miracle. Concerning it, in his usual, entirely understated prose, John simply writes this. Jesus said, have the people sit down. We learn from the other Gospels in groups of 50 or 100. Now there was much grass in that place. This is neat. It's just, it almost, you just blow past this, but it's a neat Reminder that this story is from a first person, first hand account, an eyewitness eyewitness account of John here. Who else? Why else would he say, now there is much grass in that place? So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, just the men. Jesus then, here's the miracle, he took the loaves, little boy's stuff, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. That's it. If you've been to a potluck at Grace Church, talk to the dolls, you know that coordinating food for 200 can be a significant endeavor. We're mostly guessing how many of you are going to show up and how much you'll eat, how hungry you are when you get here. It can take a long time to get everyone through the line, and then it's typically a challenge to make sure there's even a seat for you all. It's not unusual, despite our best efforts, for the food or seats to run out before everyone has one or some. The miracle, once again, was in feeding an unimaginable number, of, unimaginable number of people without any preparation and without any earthly resources at all. We're only told three things. Here are the three things. Again, it, it just it's amazing to me how understated all this is. Jesus had the disciples have everyone sit on the grass. All right. Number two, he gave thanks for the few pieces of Bread and fish that they had, simple enough. And third, there was enough to go around. That's it. That's all we know. There's no real mention of how everything was distributed or how long it took or how the fish and bread multiplied or any of the other details that we work so carefully on when we feed people here. Even though details are scarce, we cannot miss the staggering reality of what happened, though. This was a miracle. Jesus was not bound by the limits of ordinary men because Jesus was not an ordinary man. He was and is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we trust him. Trust him, Grace. Trust him with all that you have and all that you are. Believe on his name that you might, as John is writing this for, have fullness of life now 
and forever. Well, the second thing to see from this passage is that not only did everyone have something to eat, but John makes sure to say this more than once. Everyone was able to eat as much as they wanted to the point that every single person was able to eat to their fill. Again, in contrast with our ordinary experience, instead of trying to stretch the limited quantities when more people show up than we plan for so that everyone gets something but not quite enough, Jesus made sure that everyone ate until they were fully satisfied. Grace, hear me say two things here. Number one, Jesus has no shortage of anything ever. Jesus has no shortage of anything ever. And number two, he is pleased, it is his pleasure to satisfy his people entirely. Remember that. It's so easy to forget that, especially when life is hard or you're not getting what you think you deserve. Jesus has no shortage of anything ever. No ability, no shortage of an ability to heal or provide or save or rescue ever. And he is pleased not just to give us meager quantities, or, or just enough to barely get by, but to fully satisfy us entirely and eternally. This miracle shows both of those things to us as clearly as possible. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Grace, you know this, but all that has been made was made by the word of his power. He summoned all the fish. Think of every fish on earth that has ever been. They were summoned into existence with a word. His word. He is the word. And he can do so again and further at any moment without any effort. Likewise, Jesus is infinitely glorious and offers all of himself to all who will receive him. He withholds none of his glory from any of his people. That means that he means us not to live now or eternally with anything less than the peace that surpasses understanding. Life to the full, see later in John 10, with all joy and with complete satisfaction. Neither of those things, that there's no shortage in Jesus of anything ever, or that Jesus is pleased to satisfy us entirely, neither of those things mean that we will be wealthy or healthy on earth. Jesus makes that plain as well. Those are not first promises of physical fulfillment, although we'll get those later as well. They are, however, promises of a greater, fuller, spiritual fulfillment that is able to count every trial joy, rejoice in every suffering for the sake of the name, count all that the world has as loss, and to consider death gain. Eat until you're full, Grace. Eat until you're full. Not of the, not of the food that the world offers that can never truly satisfy, but of Jesus who offers himself freely, who is, in fact, we'll see in a few verses or a few chapters, the bread of life. The masses ate bread and fish until they were full to give us a picture of the abundant life that Jesus won and offers to everyone who will receive him. Third, more than simply enough, though, there were even leftovers. Verse 12, and when they had all eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten them. Much has been made of this. I I read a lot on this this week. 
And the main ideas seem to be able to be boiled down into two ideas. Some suggest that the 12 baskets represented God's blessing for the 12 tribes of Israel. And John doesn't tell us this, but later in the other Gospels, we read that after this, there's another miraculous feeding of 4,000. Those who suggest this is mainly the 12 baskets are the 12 tribes of Israel also typically believe that that, the feeding of 4,000, had seven baskets left. And that represented or corresponded to God's blessing of the Gentiles as well. The other method of thinking or manner of thinking is, is, is less symbolic and far more practical. Others believe that the leftovers were simply a way of Jesus helping his disciples eat for the next few days as a way of reminding them that he will provide all that they need. Both of those things are certainly true. And so we should celebrate them, even though John doesn't make clear which of those or both or something else entirely that Jesus specifically intended. John's point in writing what he did was once again to help his readers see that Jesus really is the Christ, that we might believe in him and have life. And so finally then we see the response. What what was the response of this? What do you imagine you would do if you just saw this, if you just sat there and witnessed this? Well, we, re- we see the response of the people as well. They gained clarity as to who Jesus was, but also confusion as to what it meant. Having witnessed and partaken in Jesus' miracle, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. We saw this once before in John chapter 1, where the Jews were wondering of John the Baptist, they asked him, are you the prophet? They they didn't know. Something was clearly unique about this man. And so they asked him, are you the prophet? Well, this is the prophet referred to by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Well, they asked John, they knew now for certain that Jesus was he. And they were right. But what should they do now that the prophet had arrived? It's a good question for sure, but not one that they answered rightly. Indeed, instead of simply listening to, if if this is the prophet promised by Moses, what should they have done? They, They should have listened to and followed him and sat underneath him. And Jesus, you tell us what to do. But instead, they sought to take him by force to make him king. Grace, they sought to use Jesus as a tool to accomplish his own purposes. They sought to use the power that they had just witnessed in Jesus to do what they would. They sought to make him into a weapon to fight the battles that they felt needed to be fought. If ever there was an example of Jesus teaching that man does not live by bread alone, it's this. Do you get that? They ate and ate and ate and had their bellies full, but their souls were still empty. Their bellies were full of bread, but their souls were empty of faith and life. You don't wield Jesus as a weapon or a magic wand for your purposes. Well, knowing this, Jesus knew this because he knows the hearts of all men. He slipped away. Grace, he would not then and he will not now be used for the purposes of men. He was there to do the will of the Father, and until the time appointed by the Father, no man could lift a finger against Jesus, whether to do him harm or to make him king. Grace, it is right for us to join the crowd in acknowledging that Jesus is that prophet promised. 
We must also join them in recognizing that he is, in fact, the king. But we must break from them in seeking to manipulate Jesus' power and authority to accomplish our own purposes. We cannot do so. Jesus cannot be manipulated. But equally important for you and I to recognize this morning, though, is the fact that even if we could, even if you could figure out a way to do that, it would always, 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 always be for a lesser purpose than that that, Je- than that that Jesus has for you. Grace, the last thing in the world you should want, that I should want, if we really understand Jesus, is for him to do your will. That's the last thing you should want. He is full of all goodness, knowledge, wisdom, and power. You and I are finite, fickle, and fallen. He is continually working for all working all things for greatest glory and good, we are often driven by selfish, silly desires. Why in the world would you or I want to override Jesus' perfect plan? Well, once again, let us learn from the mistakes of the crowds and turn to Jesus in humble, surrendered faith. Let us fight to believe and remember that trusting in Jesus is the only path to everlasting life and joy. And that's why he's showing us these miracles. That's why he's performing these. That's why God inspired these things to be written down and recorded for you and I to know fullness of life and joy in Jesus.